Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Bobby Powers, head of HR and learning and development for Gravity Payments. Gravity Payments might sound familiar. They made headlines a number of years ago in 2015 when their CEO announced that he was going to take a significant pay cut, more than 90% pay cut, and raise the minimum salary at Gravity Payments to $70,000 a year. Uh, It caught my attention, thought it would be really interesting to get some insights into the company that would make that kind of a decision. And I, I had an inkling that there might be some more behind the scenes than just that. And, and there definitely is. Bobby uh, not only runs HR and learning and development for them, but he is a prolific writer and reader, reading over 70 books a year. He writes on Medium and has his own podcast, bobbypowers.net. He is incredibly, obviously, well-read, but also a very thoughtful guy. And we get into a lot of topics beyond the kind of flashy, sexy uh, $70,000 a year that drive most people's awareness of the company. I really think that there's a lot in here to take away, whether you're a leader shaping your company and maybe thinking about doing some things that are a little unorthodox or outside the box, or or whether you're an employee trying to make the most of your own career. Their BYOC mentality, be your own CEO, really resonates with uh, definitely other guests we've had on this podcast, including Mike Sorelli and... uh, the book Extreme Ownership that he preaches. Really think you're going to enjoy this one. I really enjoyed the conversation as a a reader and writer myself. So without further ado, here is Bobby Powers. And we are live. Bobby, we're recording this on a Sunday. So very casual. How are you feeling today? Feeling good. Yeah, Yeah. having a good Sunday. During COVID season, I've just been trying to take advantage of long walks on weekends. So doing a lot of that. I just got got done with the five-miler. Oh, there you go. That's great. Does Sunday feel any different than any other day during COVID? No, not too much. Each day meshes together pretty well. So yeah, just trying to survive. Keep my head down. All right. Well, I appreciate you joining me here. I'm really excited for our conversation. I had reached out to you cold. You know, you and I have not, we've only had a few conversations. We, we've not met each other before, but I was really impressed by gravity payments for a number of reasons that we'll get into. And then I thought, oh, well, it'd be really interesting to talk to somebody in the HR department there, looked you up, and then was really interested in you uh, just individually. And so I, I thought it'd be great to maybe we'll start with you and then get into the company and really curious on your perspective on some of this stuff today. But I guess like if we can just go back and start at the beginning, how did you come to even be at Gravity Payments in the first place? And, and like, what's the history that brought you there? Yeah, for sure. So my wife and I had been living in Boise, Idaho, and we had talked about going to a bigger city. 
and Seattle really jumped out to us as a, the kind of place that we wanted to be. We, we had been over here and visited friends in the past and, and really liked it. So I started to look around and ask friends and family what companies they really respected in the area. And Gravity Payments came up a lot, part for its living wage policy and part for just the progressive nature of the company, really just trying to treat people fairly and treat businesses fairly and, and stand up for small businesses. So applied for the company. Ended up getting my foot in the door, came in as a business analyst on the finance team of all things. And I was told that the company didn't really hire people into management roles very often. You start ground up and learn the business and then you see where you end up going from there. So I came in as a business analyst, worked in that role for six months. And then the company lived up to their word of letting me just do things I was interested in. And I was able to create a role doing learning and development as the, the head of L&D at the company and jumped into that uh, about six months into role. And now I've taken over HR and also doing L&D and yeah, just really learning new things constantly. It, it's been quite a ride. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of learning and development. I mean, you know, I do a podcast. I like having these conversations. I like learning new things. And so I'm always curious about companies and what they're doing from a learning standpoint. But how did you pick that as the route that you wanted to go? Yeah, I looked back on past roles I had had in my career, and I realized that I had unknowingly been doing L&D-related stuff the whole time. So I was a director of a 160-person client services team for a SaaS company in Boise when I lived over in Boise. And the stuff I gravitated toward was L&D stuff. I I was putting on trainings. I was uh, butting up with new hires and trying to help them out in their progression with the company. And I was doing a lot of stuff around manager development and training. And so I looked back on that past role and I looked back on some of the things that I was passionate about as a human of just reading and teaching other people and learning and growing. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. And so I made the the pitch to a few senior leaders at Gravity that we need to have an L&D person. And if you're open to it, I think that should be me. And they went for it. So now here I am. And oh, by the way, I found I found a candidate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did, what was that conversation like for you? You know, how did you make that pitch? What was their response? Yeah, how did you handle that type of conversation? Yeah, it's interesting because I think more and more companies these days are trying to find ways to look first at what their employee skill sets are and then plug people into roles that make sense for those people. And so Gravity is definitely one of those progressive kinds of companies that we try to look at where someone's passions are. And then we say, how does that passion fit into what we do? Is there any way that we can get somebody to line up a little bit more with what they really, truly want to do? And so as I made that pitch, um, basically what I was asked to do is to workshop that role for a little while. So they said, stay working as a business analyst and take baby steps into this new role. And a couple months from now, if you've done a good job, the entire company should just be able to nod their heads and say, yeah, Bobby's already been doing L&D, of course. And so I basically just worked with a small team of a few people to launch a mini L&D program. We put on a couple trainings around leadership development topics every month. We recorded those trainings and put them into our e-learning system. We did exit surveys of those trainings and tried to recalibrate and find out what we could do differently with the next one. And basically just baby stepped my way into that role. And then sure enough, a couple months later, looked back at the ground we had covered and was able to justify making that kind of switch. And 
people nodded their heads and said, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing now. So it was really interesting in that I was told from a lot of the senior leadership there that you can make a way for this. It's all on you. And it was right. So were you doing that work during your day job or were you doing it nights and weekends, putting in the extra time that way? Like, did they make space for you or were you, were they like all good, but do it on your own? Yeah, great question. It was a little bit of both. And and they had acknowledged that if you want to do this, you still have to keep your full-time job going. You still have to keep up the number of cases that you're doing on the finance team. So I had a conversation with my boss on the finance team at the time and level set expectations a little bit with her and tried to find out what do you need from me for the, the finance team to be successful. And so she set some some standards there and I was able to keep those going. And she also gave me some bandwidth during the day. She said, if you're keeping up with the amount of workflow we have coming in, we have a slow day, feel free and go do more of this L&D stuff. So it didn't end up involving that many more hours or anything like that. It was just basically making sure that I was first prioritizing my current role and then second, filling the gaps with this L&D role. Kudos to you for doing that. And that strikes home for me because... We have people often in our in our organization who want to switch from the service side to the sales side. And so I sell our service and it is a pretty high pressure sales job. You only get a handful of opportunities each year and you need to hit a certain budget and there's a lot of pressure to budget. It's a 100% commission sales job. So there's no salary, there's no backup. And a lot, what not not a lot, but what happens sometimes is you get people on the service side who say, "Oh, well, well, I could do the sales side. I see that. I see that there's an income potential there, and they want to make that switch." And then what we'll often say is, "Great, go set some meetings. Like go out and start knocking on doors, and you know, do your day job, but just get a couple meetings. Bring another producer out with you, and let's see how that goes." and I've been at the company for 11 years and almost no one actually does it because it's so much harder. It's so much easier to say from the outside, oh, I want that thing than to actually prioritize it, take the time and go execute on it. So that was a part of your story that, that caught my attention too. And I was wondering, this may, this may be kind of a non sequitur here, but reading for you. I, I know that you know a lot of people are readers, but you sort of identify with that in a very different way. Maybe not a very different way, but in a, in a more extreme way, uh, more purposeful way. Can you describe your reading habits and what you do with that reading? Yeah, for sure. So reading has been one of the biggest parts of my life for the last decade or so. I read over 70 books a year. A, a lot of those are related to business, leadership, psychology, marketing, you name it, like just basically different things that in the nonfiction world can be tools that I use to solve real problems in my life. And so oftentimes the genesis of that is I'm facing some kind of problem of, I'm really struggling to give feedback to this peer. And I go read books about feedback and that teaches me how to solve a real world problem. And I, I immediately go and use it. So that's been my reading journey. I, really, for the last decade or so, I've been doing that kind of thing. And I read a lot of nonfiction. I also read a lot of fiction. I've been reading more and more fiction recently and getting into that as a, a way of learning other people's stories, learning how to be a better storyteller and build empathy. Tons of research supports the idea that fiction helps us build empathy and see the world from another another lens. 
But yeah, I looking back when I was growing up, I, I loved reading when I was you know five, ten years old. I did the Pizza Hut Book It program. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but no, I haven't. What was that? Yeah, it was a nationwide program Pizza Hut rolled out years ago that you could read and you could earn little stickers that eventually you would turn in for like baseball tickets or free books or gift card to your athletic store or anything like that. And so I loved doing that as a kid. But then in junior high, high school and college, I really had the love of reading bashed out of me. I, I stopped reading at all for fun. Reading became just a purely a mechanism to get a grade on a quiz or a test. And I stopped reading until right around senior year of college, I picked up Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. And I read the book, Blink. And I, I, I think someone had randomly recommended the book to me and said, it, it's actually a really good nonfiction book. And I thought that was a, an absurd concept at the time. Yeah, those two things don't go together. Yeah, they did it all in my mind up until then. But I read that book and I said, oh my gosh, I can learn something new and I can also enjoy it. And light bulbs went off. You know, that's the first time I had ever experienced that sensation of learning something new, having these cool stories from Gladwell I can share with my friends. And then also, I'm really enjoying the whole process. So that put me on this whole path I'm on now of, you know, reading 70 plus books a year. I want to get into the book reading, into the minutiae of that a little bit, but to tie that back to your proactiveness and going out and building the L&D department, do you think that it's just your innate drive to learn and do new things that that drove you both to reading and to creating that role for yourself? Or do you think it was something about the reading and, and the lessons that you've picked up that gave you the drive to go out and do that on your own? to build that role? Yeah, I think it was both. I definitely just love learning and, and I consider myself to be a really curious person. But also, I, I think that there's a positive flywheel that you see with reading of you read and then you realize that what you just read last week solves a business problem today. And that it makes you that much more excited to read more. And so I started to see these incredible connections between things that I had read. I had maybe read a behavioral economics book about how people make buying decisions. And then I had also read a marketing book about how marketers use psychological principles to sell. And then I read a leadership book about how people lead teams. I would take all those ideas together and that would solve a problem for me in whatever job I had at the time of like I was working in retail management at Target for a couple years. And I took the lessons I learned from all these different places and those were solving problems for me on the retail store basis of leading a team that's trying to merchandise store shelves. You know, so just weird observations like that spun the flywheel in a really positive way for me that made me want to read even more. And I think once you get into that too, you you see, oh, I can learn things for myself and it becomes this intrinsic thing. And so then it builds that muscle of going out and doing things proactively. And then that leads to things like what you did, which is oh, I want to take on this role. So I'm going to proactively build that out. I'm going to proactively learn this thing. And I, I just think it strengthens that muscle of action, which is funny to think of reading, strengthening that muscle of action. But I think when you read the way you do, which is especially a lot of nonfiction, that's a common byproduct of that. I know I've seen that in my own life. I have a very similar story to you, which is I wasn't part of the Pizza Hut Club, although I was a Pizza Hut fanatic as a kid. Every birthday party was at Pizza Hut with my brother and I fighting over who was going to put the money in the jukebox. But, you know, read as a kid, enjoyed it, 
went to college, and I actually got into a major that I picked purely based on passion, not on any potential future outcome. And that sort of taught me that I could do things for myself that were interesting to me. And when I got out of college, I, I started reading and it's just ramped up and up and up and up. And now I'm not at 70 books a year. Uh, I want to get into how you do that. But I'm at the last two years, I've been at 30, according to my Goodreads app. Yeah, which is huge. And and the average American reads far, far fewer than that. And, and yeah. so, you know, I, I think even um, I was talking to a friend a few years ago who he had not read a book in years. Yeah. And his goal was, I just want to finish a book. You know, I start all these books. I never finish anything. And I think just building that muscle of showing yourself that I, I can start something, I can finish it. And I can also learn from it and put it into practice. Whether you're moving from zero books to one or from one to 10, like th- those are huge strides for anyone. And I think it's less about the number that any one of us reads and more about what we actually do with that info. Which is a perfect segue to my next question, which is you read 70 books a year. How in God's name do you actually retain and apply that information? Yeah, yeah. This is a topic that comes up a lot. So I, I've written a little bit about this topic online. So I have a website, bobbypowers.net. I, I write about this kind of stuff, like all all the nerd habits, you know? But I, geeked, comes... I geeked out on that, by the way. I, I, was, <laughs> I read a bunch of them. That was right up my alley. I was like, oh man, I got to have this guy on and, and talk about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, this guy's a huge nerd. You got to have him on your podcast, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, I mean, that's the point of having a podcast, right? Is you get to be a nerd and it's okay because you're the host. Yeah. Oh, that's great. But yeah, so so basically, I think for me, it comes back to the way I write notes on books. So, you know, people throw around the term marginalia, which is basically just a fancy way of saying you write notes in the margins of a book. And I, I have a very specific system of marginalia that I've developed over the years of doing this, which is just basically like little cues for myself of what I want to take away from that book. So it's, it's underlining things. It's writing little stars in the margins of, I want to go back to this. And then the biggest part that's been helpful for me is I realized that when I had finished a book and I put it back on my shelf, maybe six months or a year later, I, had, I would have things come up that I wanted to go back to that book and cross-reference something. I, I knew that book had a story that I wanted to include in this article I'm writing, or it has the answer to the thing that I've been struggling with. And I would go back to my books and I realized that I didn't have a quick cataloging system to find that insight. So what I did to to try to solve that is I've started to write in the back cover of every single book, fiction and nonfiction, both actually, even if reading Harry Potter, I write notes in the back of Harry Potter and that back of the book section, I jot down page numbers with a little quick phrase or sentence on what my takeaway was. And I'll have, you know, at the end of a 300-page book, I might have 15 or 20 of those notes. Page number 100, O'Brien made this great comment about this thing I want to remember. And I go and look in the back cover, and that has all of my main takeaways. And so if I want a quick three-minute summary of that book, I turn to the back cover of anything I've read in the last decade. That's great. And I, I have heard similar techniques to that. I've not adopted that yet, but that is something that I have been thinking about. I just finished How to Read a Book, which is about as meta nerdy as you can get. Yep. Have you read Have you read that one? I haven't. I've stumbled across it, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah. So that is a philosophical book on how to read and, and retain information. And it is 
it is interesting that it's dry in a lot of places too, as you would expect, but there are some interesting insights into that and it has changed how I've started to read. Uh, but I, I only finished it maybe two months ago. So, uh, I'm still figuring out how I'm going to put some of that stuff into practice. I was plowing through books for a long time. And what I realized was I need to double down on the books that I think are the most impactful and really own those. And then, you know, the other stuff I can just sort of fly through until I find stuff that's interesting. And so I've sort of narrowed down to my five or 10 that I think are, are going to have the most impact in my life. And then I spend a lot of time on those. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know there are some people that just reread the same book over and over and over because they glean so many insights from that. So again, going back to what we talked about before, I think it's it's less so on the number of new books someone consuming. It's more so what are you practically doing with that? So like for, for me, it's these margin notes, you know, it's notes in the back of the book. And a lot of those notes in the back of the book are me jotting down, what am I going to do at work on Monday with this information? Like, I want to try this thing with our new L&D program. Or I really like this people analytics metric that they shared. I'm going to build that into this HR dashboard that I'm, I'm building out. So that kind of stuff, I think if you wed it to practical application, you, you can't go wrong. So you're looking at it conceptually long-term, but then also immediate short-term you know, problems that are on your desk right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's both those. That's a, that's a great way to look at it. Before we get off the topic of reading top three to five books. Yeah. So one of them that always, it always comes to mind in these conversations is crucial conversations. It's a book by a series of a few authors, Carrie Patterson, uh, Joseph Grenny, uh, Ron McMillan and Al Switzler. And those individuals wrote this book, Crucial Conversations. It's all about how to have tough conversations with people. And that is fundamental for me. That's how I give and receive feedback is that book. And it has shown up in so many different places in my life, even like relationships with family and friends. It's not just workplace stuff. So that's one of the biggest ones. Um, second one I would say is Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. So two brothers, one comes at writing from more of a marketing perspective, one from more of a psychology perspective, and they write books together. This book is about how to make messages stick in the mind of an audience. And phenomenal book. If you're a marketer, if you're a salesman, if you're a a teacher, a lot of teachers will draw upon that book and creating a classroom environment that the messages stick. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And that one... Huge, huge book for me, even as like a, a public speaker, it teaches you how to simplify and consolidate tough messages down. Yeah. Just how to, how to land ideas in the minds of whoever, the listener, the reader, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And the third one I'd say to round out the list would be Wooden on Leadership. It's a book by oh, basketball yeah. coach John Wooden. And he pairs up with a journalist to write books um, back back when Wooden was alive. And so this is, I think, his best book. And it talks about how to lead. And it's interesting, you know, book coming from a basketball coach, you wouldn't think that would be maybe that relevant in the business world. But it's arguably the best leadership book I've ever read, mainly because he talks about how to care for people, how to love people in a deep and human way, and how that shows up in the way that you lead. And he won, what, 11 national titles with UCLA? Yeah, I think it was 11 titles, including seven consecutively with the UCLA Bruins. 
pretty phenomenal record as a yeah. coach. When it comes to leading and and achievement, he's an authority for sure. Well, thank you for those. I'm always curious too. And I've actually, I've not read Crucial Conversations yet or Wooden on Leadership. So I'll have to, I'll add those to the list for sure. Switching back then to gravity payments. So gravity payments caught my attention as it may sort of be somewhat recognizable to people who are listening to this if they can't place it because of the the compensation philosophy that you have. And rather than me talk about it, I guess, w- would you just explain sort of why people might have heard of the company? Yeah, for sure. So our founder and CEO, Dan Price, made the decision back in 2015 that he was going to cut his own million-dollar salary so then he could pay every single person on the team at least $70,000 per year as a minimum living wage. And so that doesn't mean that everybody just makes 70 k That's just the baseline. And so he worked with our company and our head of finance to basically ramp up everyone to, to $70,000 a year. And we recently made the decision to even roll that out in a new company that we acquired in Boise. So back where I'm from, Boise, Idaho, we had acquired a, a small software company there. And the cost of living is drastically different than Boise, Idaho. I, I know because I've lived in both places. Very, very different. And we just rolled out that same 70K living wage ramp for Boise as well. And the decision was really fueled by some of the conversations that Dan had had with team members and, and friends, people talking about how they were worried about a rent increase of you know, $50, $100, $200 a month and that that was going to break them. And Dan just didn't feel like it was the right thing for him to be paid so much and for his team members to not be able to deal with a, a small rent increase like that. So he made that decision and um, ended up getting you know a lot of press for gravity along the way, which is great. But yeah, something that we're very thankful for, um, for that living wage. Not all positive press either, though. I mean, that it's a great thing to say, oh, that's great. Everybody's going to make money. But there were a lot of people who were not fans of that, including, from what I've read, some of your clients. Yeah, it depends on the story that you read on that. You know, and any supercharged business decision like that is going to get its share of blowback. So he was called on to different news shows from people that were calling him a socialist and thinking that he was advocating for art and socialism. Not that he just wanted to pay people enough so they can do their their normal day-to-day lives. Um, we had a couple employees that left around the time because they thought it was unfair that you know they had been at a salary that was close to that new minimum salary. And they thought it was unfair that everyone was getting paid as much as, as they were now. So yeah, it, it came with its share of a couple drawbacks, but you know, the business has soared since then. You know, we we've grown, I forget the exact numbers, but since then I think we've doubled or tripled in our total number of clients that we're serving. And and our our revenue and, and income has continued to go up um, with the the small caveat of COVID. You know, COVID hit us just like it hit everybody, but be, before that the business has definitely been doing well. And even in non-traditional metrics, like sure, our financials went up, but we've also been able to see more and more people pay down debt. We've had a lot more babies born at the company from people to feel like they're in a financial situation. They can have a family now for the first time. So it's had all these really positive impacts. That's fantastic. And that was that idea was born out of the research that came out. And I 
I would get it wrong if I tried to quote who did the research, but after about $75,000, every extra dollar you earn has diminishing returns, right? On your happiness. And so the more you make up to $75,000 exponentially more, the happier you get. Because like you just said, you have flexibility, which is really just less stress, right? So you have more peace of mind. And then above that, you still get more happiness as you make more above that, but it each dollar is a little bit less, you, you gain a little bit less happiness than you gained before. And so if what I have read is correct, you know, that was sort of how that decision was, was initially made. And it sounds like that's borne out from what you've seen. Yeah. And one of Dan's goals was making that decision too, was to take money off the table as a concern for employees. You know, so Dan doesn't even look at money as a big incentive. He he talks about how money and, and compensation just overall is more of a hygiene factor that if it's there, you're you're good. That that box is checked and you can focus on all the other things that make you happy and hopefully have a job that gives you fulfillment and be working toward a really motivating vision and mission for your company. Like for us, it's helping small businesses out. So yeah, I, I think that that's one thing that's been lost in a lot of the coverage around gravity is people think that we're a company that we just try to lavishly throw money at people. And it's actually our goal is to take money out of concern so then people can focus on other things and grow and develop. Which, I mean, since we've already talked so much about books, Daniel Pink's Drive, that's exactly the premise of that book, right? Is is that money is a factor until you hit a certain point. And then after that, all these other things come into play, which is why you get some companies that pay their people a lot and they have high turnover because it's not checking all the boxes. There are other, there are other levels of Maslow's hierarchy that you need within a company. I think about that when I'm advising companies too, because what, what I do is total rewards consulting. And so that's one bucket, right? Comp benefits, retirement, like that is a bucket. But if you're just focused on our bucket to help with recruiting and retention, you're going to be missing out on all the other buckets and all the other levels of Maslow's hierarchy that you need. And so I think that's a, a good insight. Yeah, that, that book is incredible. So that's another one for those of you that are listening. If you haven't read Drive by Dan Pink, great, great book. And that was a book that was one of the factors that our, our CEO and founder, Dan Price, used was Dan Pink's book and his research. And um, we talk a lot about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Those are the three things that come out in Dan Pink's research that are really necessary for people to feel fulfilled in their jobs. They want autonomy, they want mastery, and they want purpose. And those three things, I think if you as a, an employer or you as a manager or leader in your organization, if you're focused on those things, you end up creating an atmosphere that people really feel a lot more engaged and the focus should be there more so than on the money. Which is a, a great segue because I know, and I know you've written about this too, but the company gets a lot of cachet for that decision to have a $70,000 minimum wage. But I mean, that's just one piece, like you said, right? You So you check that box. Now you still have to create autonomy, mastery, purpose. You have to build out that environment. You have to help grow. You have to have a product that people want. There's, I mean, that's just one little piece. It's easy to say, oh, well, they are, they're very generous with their people. So naturally they'd be a great company, but that those two are not necessarily interchangeable. So what is it about the company that has led to the success beyond just the $70,000 minimum wage? 
Yeah. Yeah. People focus in on the 70K thing a lot, but I think that for me as an employee, one of the things that I most appreciate is we have a culture that's really oriented around this idea of be your own CEO. It's a phrase we use a lot, be your own CEO. And by that, we mean autonomy. And so going back to Dan Pink's whole autonomy, mastery, purpose, um, we think that people who are empowered to make their own decisions and they don't have to run every decision up a corporate ladder to get a ton of bureaucratic approvals, those kinds of people end up doing better work and end up enjoying their their jobs and their lives more. So for me, what that looks like is I was able to roll out that learning and development program as a business analyst in finance. And people didn't really bat an eyelash at that, that yeah, a finance guy is going and running this program because he's being his own CEO. He wants learning and development, so he's running with that. And so that that idea, that concept of more employee empowerment, it's something that's been a really big business buzzword for the last five, 10 years. Everyone is preaching this empowerment gospel. But I think truly trying to do that and live that out means that you are taking decisions out of your manager's hands and you're putting it in the hands of whatever you view to be like a frontline employee. And for us, we don't view it as like a business hierarchy of frontline employees and then all these senior managers. We don't view it as these people are better or worse than these other people or can make better or worse decisions. We actually try to be customer focused in the hierarchy that as many decisions as can be made by people that are closely working directly with our customers. So sales rep, customer service rep, anyone like that, that's a probably a better decision to be made by someone that's working directly with that customer. So it's a total flip on the normal model of hierarchy. Do you have some examples of what that looks like? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we have people, our small businesses that we work with. So we do credit card payment processing. That, that's that's our, our business, um, merchant services. So if a merchant that we work with calls into our customer support line, and maybe they have an issue with something on their their credit card statement for this last month, and they think that something was mischarged. In most corporate kind of environments, you would need to go and get direct management approval if you were going to authorize any more than like $5 of a discount for someone or, you know, making a situation right. And for us, we've had these frontline employees, people that are working directly with, with customers, they have made decisions that have been thousands of dollars in impact. And they're pulling the trigger on their own and they're making those decisions. So on a daily basis, we have people all through the organization that are making these kinds of judgment calls. And it's not a perfect system. You know, like first thing, if I was listening to this podcast, I'd say, oh my gosh, that could go so awry. What (laughs) happens when blank? You know, so it's not perfect because we do still sometimes have to go back and retrospect on a decision and find out was that the right thing to do or not. That still happens. But the default mode is that we believe that our people can make wise decisions. And if you start with that as the default, it reorients the way you think about business a little bit. A couple things come to mind there. One is that, yes, people can make good decisions, right? Like if I can understand the purpose and make a good decision, then other people should be able to do the same thing. But they have to know the goal, right? Like you all have to be rowing in the same direction for those decisions to make sense. How do you? build that within people so that they understand purpose, mission, parameters, all that kind of stuff. So the Be Your Own CEO concept, I think as a company, 
we, for a long time, we thought that that just meant empowering employees. But recently, in the last few years, um, we have been focusing on pairing that empowerment with also equipping employees. So to me, this the formula, I guess, for enabling someone to be their own CEO, make decisions, is empowering them and equipping them. If the equipment part is missing of them knowing how the business works, what the impacts are of that decision, then you have all these empowered people that are making horrible decisions or that are at the very least, they don't know what to do. They have all this energy, but they don't know where to direct it. So uh, equipping employees is extremely, extremely important. And what we've done to try to help out with that piece of it, and one of the things I've, I've personally been really, really involved with driving is we rolled out a three-day comprehensive onboarding process for every employee. So regardless of what department you're going into, what role you're going to have, every employee goes through three days of comprehensive training that they learn about every department in the company. They learn about how we serve our merchants, how the credit card industry works. So even if you're going into the HR team, you're going to learn about credit card interchange and card brand fees and how people are charged for credit card transactions, because that's part of being your own CEO. Got to understand the business. It's part of the team you're coming into. Yeah, you know, if you're going to be on this boat, you got to understand where the boat's going. Exactly. Yeah, and you have to understand the core business in order to do that, regardless of what function you're going to have. So I think if if you're missing either the empowerment or the equipment, this autonomy idea falls flat. But if you have both of those, I, I think it's a pretty powerful thing. That was a a fantastic answer. It gets my brain going for sure. The other thing I think about though, it goes back to crucial conversations because great, you're giving people this autonomy, they're going out, but they're going to screw it up at some point because we all make mistakes and we're all learning. And you know there are situations that are going to come up that they just handle incorrectly. And so in order to then have an effective an effective operation really and 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 an effective platform you, you would have to be able to give very tough feedback at certain times probably quite often i would imagine how does that element of feedback and criticism come into the organization and into that model yeah yeah you're right so that definitely is a necessary piece if you're going to do this type of empowerment so what that looks like is um, even, I guess, a practical example from this last week. So during COVID season, we have started doing a weekly company meeting that we want everyone to be on the same page. We want to be over communicating more than we ever have before because it's such a crucial time for people to know where we're headed and how we're doing as a company. So we have these weekly company meetings. The way most companies would run those kinds of meetings is they would have all of their senior officers be the only ones to talk. We don't do it like that. We try to hear from as many voices as we can. And that means that you have a bunch of different people sharing a bunch of different ideas. And some of those are like spot on with the way that their senior manager would express it. And sometimes they're not. So we had a situation this last week that someone had shared an update on a project that they were working on. And I thought that they could have maybe shared that a little bit differently. So I gave them a call afterward and walked through some of my advice, some of my feedback for how future updates could potentially be shared. And we walked through that. She was really receptive, um, great conversation. 
And it was all oriented around this idea of growth. As I said, hey, I really believe in you as an employee. I want to hear you share way more at these company meetings. So you should be sharing a ton. With that comes this high burden of responsibility that I want you to be the best in the company explaining this stuff. And so if you're modeling your your feedback like that, and it, it's clear to that person that you're sharing the feed for their own development and their growth, then I think that conversation can go really, really well and, and often does because you're you're modeling how you want them to behave. How do you encourage people to proactively have those conversations with each other? Yeah. One of the ways we've done that is we do trainings company-wide on feedback every year. So we, we run a similar kind of giving feedback training you know, multiple times over the last few years. And in that training, we ask the question of whose job is it to give feedback? And a lot of the time, newer employees or people that don't quite get it yet will say, that's the manager's job. Managers give feedback. And that's part of being a manager. And we have a conversation around that and say, no, it's every single person's job. And, and if we only have you know 16 managers or whatever, and only 16 people out there, they're trying to make our company better. We are not going to be the company that we could be. But if we have 200 people going out and doing that same thing, like our entire employee base, what a powerful thing that could be to harness the feedback, the ideas, the wisdom from 200 people. And so I think really it's about trying to put that onus of responsibility on each individual person. And it's, it's a tough thing because feedback is hard. It, it's just naturally a difficult human thing to do. But if you empower and equip on something like feedback, I, I think that helps out a lot. And that's a muscle too, that the more you use, the better you get at it. And the better you get at giving it and the better you get at receiving it too. And I've heard the power of feedback has come up in these conversations a number of times, as well as books I've read or interviews I've seen. I had a, a gentleman on here a couple of weeks ago who is CEO of uh, Echelon Front Overwatch. And he's also a leadership instructor with Echelon Front, which treat, teaches the framework from the book Extreme Ownership. And so he was a, a Navy SEAL, had 10 combat deployments, and for a period of time was also doing training for newer SEALs and newer SEAL officers. And he said that he talked about the importance of after action reports for everything. And he said, and it's not only, to your point, the senior guys coming in and telling all of the trainees what they could have done better, or even having the trainees tell each other what they could have done better. He said, every time they would ask and say, hey, I know you have never been in combat before. You're a new SEAL. I, you know, I've been in eight combat deployments so far, but tell, I, I want to know what you thought. How could I be a better SEAL? How could I be a better operator? What did you notice that I've glazed over because I've done this so many times? And just the value of creating a high-performing team when everybody can give each other feedback. And, and you, like to your point, you just get so much more perspective, which then helps everybody get better. And, and it really comes back to your understanding of what is a manager's job and what is a non-manager's job. If you as a company are only viewing feedback as in the manager bucket, I think that's a huge mess. And it probably means that you're viewing a lot of other things on, in that manager bucket too, which means that your employees are not getting the chance to have work delegated to them. They're not able to actually spread their wings. They're unable to do tough projects because you probably haven't trusted them to do that. It sounds like you've gotten rid of that framework 
almost completely at gravity payments. At trying to, yeah, it's a tough framework to break down because it's so pervasive. You know, all of America, really probably all of the world has this manager, non-manager model. And to us, the manager role is still extremely important. You know, that that's the role that we don't devalue in terms of that that has high impact on a team. But I think we much more value a non-manager than other companies value non-managers because to us, even the way we pay employees, we, we don't want to pay someone more just for being a manager. We pay some non-managers more and put our money where our mouth is with that because we think it's important to not have management as a singular growth opportunity. So then what is the role of management at Gravity Payments? Yeah, it's mainly to be a servant leader. It, it's a, a chance for you to you know, be that single stopping point of trying to think more broadly and globally for your team. And you have the responsibility of having one-on-ones with your team members and trying to look at them as your work. You're, you're trying to lead and grow this group of people. And so there are still plenty of decisions that are made by managers, but in general, that that person is looked at as a leader, not as the only decision maker on the team. And if they're the only ones making decisions, then they probably won't stand that manager role for very long for us. And so speaking of managers, you actually wrote the book on manager training at Gravity Payments, literally. Could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so that was one of those fun projects I got to bite off is I had been talking to my my manager back uh, probably a year and a half ago now, a couple years ago. And his name's Emery. And he and I have both shifted roles since then because there's a lot of movement at the company. But I was telling Emery, my, my goal in my career is to write business and leadership books. And he was asking me more about that and the kind of books I wanted to write. And one of the ones I told him was, I want to write a book for new managers. I think there is a complete lack of resources for new managers. And there are a lot of books about management, but there's not a good one out there that I found that has your one-stop shop. And he looked at me and he said, why don't you write it for gravity? And my jaw must have dropped because I thought that's like, that's an absurd idea. Like, what do you mean? That's not my job. I, I want to be doing that here. And he said, yeah, you're not dreaming big enough. You should be doing that in your current role. Why don't you write a book for gravity? So he and I talked about that a little bit more and I convinced myself that, yeah, that's actually a legitimate idea. And so I went and wrote three or four chapters as a MVP, a minimum viable product of this idea and interviewed a couple people to get content for the book and then wrote this little MVP version and pitched it to a few people. And I said, would this be useful for you moving into a management role? And I asked some non-managers, I asked some managers, like, is this the kind of thing that you would learn from this material? And I gave them a little brief survey and people said, yeah, this is helpful. So I went out and spent the next nine months writing a manager book. So it's like 27,000 words, a little bit slimmed down version of a business book. And it's how to lead at gravity and has a lot of lessons about leadership in general, but a lot of it is specific to how we view leadership at our company. And we now give that to every new manager when they start out and roll. So I have my copy of the book here and I've read most of it so far. And I, I mean, I don't think it's specific just to gravity. I know that a lot of your examples are gravity and I know that you, that that was built around how you think about it. But I mean, I was really impressed by the 
depth that you went in here of having somebody first look at themselves, then look at their team, and then think about building the organization together. And I, I think it would be incredibly valuable for anybody who's stepping into a leadership role. And it's short, which is great. You know, it's short, sweet, and it's almost like a like a workbook in some ways, you know, where you can where you actually have to invest some time and do some work and and give it some thought, which I mean, that's really the only way you grow. You can read all the books in the world, but if you're not actively thinking about them, to your point about uh, writing in the margins, you know, it you're not going to retain that information. So I I I thought it was very well done. Good, good, great. Yeah, yeah glad you enjoyed it. And so, can people find that publicly to purchase if they wanted to? Yes, that book is listed on Amazon, and you can just look at the book under the title "Equip." the gravity leadership playbook and is it listed with you as the author then it is yeah that's great well i'll uh, i'll link to that in the show notes as well as everything else that we talk to here too but it's definitely worth people checking out if they're stepping into a leadership role for the first time because there are so many books on leadership and management and a lot of them are are really long and a lot of them are great but i i thought you did a great job of summarizing them all the other thing i like that you did is that at the end of every chapter, you have other books that people can go read. So it's a great starting point for the people to then launch into if they are struggling with a topic or don't quite understand something. There's five or six other options of books or articles or things that they can go look up to dive even deeper into those topics. So I I thought it was a great reference book. Yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to write a book like that is I feel like so many leadership books are oriented around one topic, like feedback. You know, there's so much to write on just feedback. Yeah, sure. But there are really some core lessons that every person starting out in leadership role should know. And so you could either, I, I was putting myself in the shoes of when I started out in management, I could go and read a book on feedback, a book on leading meetings, a book on interviewing and hiring. And I'd read, you know, 15, 20 books, or I could have one one-stop shop that has high-level info and all those. So I, I wanted to go that ladder route to the one-stop shop. Well, and, and most people just need a place to get started, right? And a, a framework to think about. That was something I talked to Mike Sorelli, the, the CEO of Echelon Front Overwatch, about that as well. And more and more, I believe that we need to be simplifying the frameworks that we're using. And so to your point, you know, there, there are all these books out there and it's great to go read them. But at the end of the day, you need to have a clear operating framework that you work within that has been tested and, and shown to be successful. And then you can add little things in, you can take little things out, you can tweak it however you want so that it's optimized for what you need to do. But if you're trying to do everything, trying to read those 20 books and apply them in your first year as a manager, there's just no way to do that. But to have something where you can have a very clear framework, a good place to start, I think that's incredibly valuable. I agree. Have I talked to you up enough about the book? I, I, I mean that though. I, I really do think it was great. Good. Well, thanks. I'm not just saying that because you agreed to spend your Sunday afternoon with me. Well, I know that we're getting close on time here and it is a Sunday, so I want to let you get back to it. But I have a couple of questions that I just try to ask people kind of generally for their impression of. The first one is, what is the purpose of business? Yeah, such a good question. Such a big question. Um, So I know the classic definition is basically to generate a profit. And I refuse to believe that definition. And I know there's been a lot of pushback 
against that idea, um, rightly so, in the last couple decades. So I, I would say the purpose of a business to me is twofold. One would be that you're creating a product or service that people love. That there's, you know, there's a market for this thing, and you're really scratching that itch for people. But then, secondly, is that you're creating an environment that people want to work in. And I think that's the part that is missed a lot. Is that to me, a business isn't just a function for producing a, a good or service. It's a place that's the livelihood for X number of people that are working within it. And so, if you can do a good job of both of those things, you'll not only have a profitable company, you'll have an engaged workforce that is making you more and more profitable. I think that's a great answer. And I, I agree with that a lot. And you hear politicians talk about wanting to create jobs, right? We need more jobs. We need more jobs. And the reason we need more jobs is because that helps people go out and lead fulfilling lives and achieve their dreams. And it keeps people happy and healthy and socially connected and all of those things. And to to just say, oh, we just we just need the jobs, stop and end of story, isn't doing it justice either, right? I, I I'm a big believer that y- you should be creating an environment where people want to show up, where they have the ability to fulfill their dreams, and where they feel autonomy, mastery, and purpose, right? All the things that we've been talking about. Is there anything that you are sick of talking about? when it comes to the workplace? And is there anything that you're really excited to be starting to talk about? I'm really sick of all of the business buzzwords and the jargon. I, I've started to see articles online of like these 20 business buzzwords need to get put to bed. you know. And I, I think in general, some of the stuff we've been talking about on this call falls in that category, like empowerment. I, I'm sick of the fluffy idea of empowerment and that not actually meaning anything to people and business is not actually doing something with that. So yeah, that, that would be one of them. What, what are you excited about? Something I'm excited about would be just really the idea of people getting into their passions, people finding out what makes them tick, which oftentimes is it two or three decade long struggle of trying to find out what am I most passionate about as a human and leaning into that thing. And so for me, it was getting more involved with learning and development for um, a friend of mine. I was actually just catching up with recently for him. It was writing children's books. He realized he had a big passion around writing children's books and, and helping connect with and, and develop the young minds of our world. And whatever it is for you, I think, finding a way to orient more of your life and your job toward that is a really, really powerful thing. And there's, there's a lot that's been written and, and talked about in terms of finding your passion and should you like quit a job to go pursue your passion or travel the world. I, I think it's less so about like quitting a job to do that thing and more so finding a time and place in your schedule to carve out little chunks of that passion for yourself. So it could be at night, like I, I read two or three hours a night and do my writing then too. After my job, I, I find little bits and pieces of how I can bake that into my job. And I think for any one of us, it looks a little different, but I get really excited about hearing someone's passion and how they're going to go live that out. I agree. I, I love that. And it's it's one of the reasons I enjoy doing this podcast, right? Is you get to 
talk to people who are passionate about what they're doing, who have something interesting to share. And then I get to be a part of helping share that. I also get to learn it. You know, as I said at the beginning, I'm a, I'm a nerd too. So I love having these conversations and learning it for myself. Bobby, this has been great. Really appreciate your time here. Appreciate your insights. I think there's a lot to learn from what you guys are doing at Gravity Payments. Is there anything else that you would want to say to put a bow on this? Yeah, I, I think the main thing would just be invest in people in whatever way that you can, wherever you are in the organization, find ways to invest in people. And usually dollar for dollar, an investment in someone else's growth and success is the best way you can spend money. And, and the way I think about it as an L&D professional is it's not just my job to develop an employee as a cog in the machine to spin faster. It's my job to develop a person, which means that I'm going to lead trainings and do things that are not just related to credit card processing. I'm going to bring in voices that help develop someone in their life and make them a better brother, sister, mother, daughter, friend, spouse, relative, citizen. You know, whatever hats they're wearing in life, I, I want to help out with that. So it even spills over into like the kinds of speakers we bring into Gravity. We, we bring in people that, that they're talking about how to develop in life and, and not just how to go sell things. Is that because you're just a really altruistic guy? I don't know. I don't see myself in that light. I so yeah, I don't think so. But I think that's part of like finding out what people are excited about is like people are excited about more than just their day-to-day job and bringing in money for the firm. And if you can find ways to teach people something new that helps them out in life, like we we hosted the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement a couple of years ago back before before all of the stuff going on today and he came in and talked about 0% credit card processing, not a single lick of credit card processing in that talk, but it was about how to be a better human and how to care for people. And I just think there's a power in doing stuff like that and viewing someone as the whole person rather than as an employee. I agree. And as you said that, it just made me think like, of course, there are business benefits to doing that too. Like if you are teaching people about how to be more resilient in life, they're going to be more successful when they're facing business challenges. If you are teaching people how to communicate better and build better relationships with their spouse, they're going to be building better relationships everywhere else in their life too, including with their employees and with your customers, right? If you're a customer service representative. So if you're teaching somebody to be happier and more content, they're going to show up happier and therefore have a better better interaction with your customers and with their coworkers. So I, I'm a believer. I mean, the, the reason this is called people business and the reason that I'm doing this whole thing is I believe that there are core principles when it comes to human beings and human interaction. And it doesn't matter whether you're in business or any other part of life, the principles are the same, right? Humans are humans. Human interaction is human interaction, whether it's in a business context or a personal context. And so, yeah, I would underscore what you said there. I mean, the more that you can, the more we can all be making ourselves more well-rounded human beings and helping our employees be more well-rounded human beings, the better our business organizations are going to be for sure. Yeah, 100%. Good. Well, that was a that was a wonderful bow to put on this. Thank you. Well, thank you. I will link to everything in the show notes. And yeah, I encourage people to check out the leadership book and uh, check out all the other books that you had mentioned, as well as you know, read up on your blog and some of your insights. So, Bobby, thank you very much. Great. Yeah. Thanks, O'Brien. 
hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.